Well, beloved, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 28. And we're going to start tonight what is a new section um, in Isaiah. You know, we just completed Isaiah's apocalypse, which is his, you know, description, his take, um, spirit-inspired take, obviously, on um, the, the spread of the gospel and the advancement of God's glory and then the end of the age, right? And um, all of that comes on the, on the heels of Isaiah's oracles concerning the nations in chapters 13 through 27. And so we see the, the judgments that are pronounced against all the nations. We see the eternal sort of uh, culmination of it all in Isaiah's apocalypse. And now we're going to sort of be brought back to Isaiah's present. Okay, And so the focus from chapters 28 through 37, we're really dealing here with uh, a contemporary issue that Isaiah, of course, had to deal with. Uh, regarding Hezekiah and the nation of Judah. So um, what's going on here is this. In chapters 28 through 35, what we're going to see is a series of messages that Isaiah preached to Hezekiah and to the nation of Judah um, prior to Sennacherib's invasion of Judah and his um, siege of Jerusalem, right? And the issue that's at hand is Hezekiah and his counselors trust in their alliance with Egypt rather than trusting in God alone. And so what we're going to see are these sermons, basically, that Isaiah spoke to Hezekiah and to his court. And, and then we're going to see, we're going to witness in verses or in chapters um, 36 and, and, and 37, which is narrative. We're going to see how Hezekiah responds to these these sermons and how he repents and the great deliverance that that God brings. But first, we're going to look at um, at the messages themselves that that bring Hezekiah and his counselors to repentance. And the first one here is found in chapter 28. So let's read it and then we'll talk a little bit about the history again and then we'll dive into it. So let's read the whole thing together. Isaiah writes, ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crowd of, crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. And that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with the strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk? and Those taken from the breast? For it's precept upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary. And this is repose. 
yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, there a little, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem, because you have said, we've made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through it will not come to us, for we, will, we, will ha- we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. The waters and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled. And your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. From morning by morning, it will pass through by day and by night. And it will be a sheer terror to understand The message, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, or as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to work his work. Alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin, but dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is excellent in counsel, or wonderful in counsel, and excellent in wisdom. Hmm. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text tonight, I pray that You will give us hearts and minds that are attentive and desiring, Lord God, to hear uh, what you have to say to us. I pray, Lord God, that you would make us to behold ever more clearly the glory and the wonder of your person, the greatness of your grace, the, the, the certainty of your judgment. Lord, everything about you that should create in us awe and reverence. I pray, Father, meet with us now in your word and, and speak to us truth to our souls. I pray in Jesus name. Amen. So here's the deal. Okay. I want to remind you of the history that kind of encompasses these messages because it's been a long time since we looked at it. And, you know, I just want to make sure we have our minds where they're supposed to be. So Hezekiah, you'll remember, was the, was the son of the evil king Ahaz. Right. And you remember what the deal was with Ahaz. Ahaz sought protection um, when Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel had sort of joined together in order to try to force him and force Judah into a compact with them against Assyria, right? So the whole idea was, if he wasn't willing to, you know, 
come in line with the northern kingdom of Israel and with Syria and join together in this pact. And they were going to try to take him off the throne and replace him with a puppet ruler. They had all these plans that they were going to do in order to get him to like, you know, toe the line, right? But rather than going along with these guys and, and, and establishing a, a, an alliance against Assyria, instead he sought protection, but not from God. He sought protection from the king of Assyria himself, right? And you remember he made, him, he made Judah a vassal state to the king at that time in Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, right? And, uh, and so he sent to him for help. He made gifts, gifts of silver and gold out of the temple and out of the, out of the royal treasury. And uh, he effectively subjected Judah to Assyrian domination. He effectively put them under Assyrian control. And, and you know, the, the nation was forced to pay this annual tribute that was exceedingly high, right? And so what happened was is that Ahaz's alliance with Assyria led to a greater moral and spiritual degradation in Judah, um, a greater falling away from God, and also the introduction of a heathen altar that was set up in Solomon's temple, right? So, pretty bad situation. So, Hezekiah, who for the first, like, 14 or so years of his, of his reign as king, was a co-regent with his dad, Ahaz. When Ahaz died, and he became the sole king in 715 B.C., he set about to just undo everything that his father had done. That was his goal. His goal was to undo everything that his father had done. So reformation on every level. We're talking socially, spiritually, politically. That was his chief priority. And, and we read how, for instance, in 2 Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 3, it tells us how he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord according to all that David, his father, had done, right? He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that, that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And that's sort of a, an overview of his life. If you look at the, the comparison passages in Chronicles, it talks about the fact how he commands the priests, the, uh, the, uh, the Levites, to go into the temple and to take out the abomination, which was the heathen altar that was in there, and, and take it away and destroy it and consecrate the place, right? So he is actively involved in trying to restore Judah, at least to some glimmer of its for, former glory, you know, and, 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 and love for the Lord. And so part of the deal with Hezekiah was he chafed at the Assyrian domination of Judah. And he was always looking for an opportunity to like to, to, to break the Assyrian yoke, to find just some weak spot that he could exploit in order to get the, 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 the nation of Judah out from under the heavy hand of the Assyrians. And so he got his opportunity. Early in the reign of Sennacherib, um, who came to power in 705, he was the new king in Assyria, he was having some problems kind of consolidating his power. And so Hezekiah thought, now's the perfect time. I will, will, I will rebel against him. We will refuse now to, to send any more payment of tribute to Assyria. And, and you know, we'll, we'll rebel against that rule and we'll break finally the yoke that was upon them. Right? That was his idea. Now... Here's the deal. That rebelling against this foreign you know, rule in and of itself wasn't the problem. Okay? The problem was that 
The motivation and the security that Hezekiah felt in rebelling against Assyria was found in a military alliance that he had made with Egypt. Okay? So he had made this alliance with Egypt and thought because he, you know, Egypt would have his back um, that it would be a good time then to rebel against Assyria while they were in turmoil and, and, and win their freedom. Right? He was trusting in fleshly means to affect their redemption or their salvation and not in the power of Yahweh, right? In the power of Yahweh to rule all things for his glory and for the good of his people. So here was the idea. Despite all the good reforms that Hezekiah had brought to Judah, this was a glaring blind spot and it was a lack of faith. And so here's what's going on. Beginning in chapters 28 through 35, Isaiah begins this series of warning messages that he brought to Hezekiah, and he brought to Hezekiah's court and his counselors this series of messages that, by God's grace, eventually led to Hezekiah's repentance and God's deliverance of Jerusalem that's recounted for us in chapters 36 to 37. And so here's what Isaiah does in chapter 28, and it's a perfect, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, um, you know, this is sermon craft at its best. Here's what he does. The first thing he does in chapter 28 is he's going to go back in time to somewhere before 722 and he's going to recount the, the message that he had delivered to the northern kingdom before they experienced the destruction under the, the, the power of Assyria. He's going to go back sometime before 722. I guess he's going through his old sermon files and he pulls this one out, you know, and he's going to use this as, as, a, as a means of, you know, saying basically, look, I told the northern kingdom this was what was going to happen to him. You all saw. That's exactly what happened to him. And then what he's going to do is he's going to use that as a springboard to, under, to, to, to bring you know, uh, another message and give teeth to this message to Judah right now. At somewhere around, and we're not really sure the dates of, of, these, of these sermons, but probably between like 704 to 702. So, there, so there's a period of time. It's not like, you know, he's, he's preaching a new message every day. And, and he may have, but these are the ones that he's, he's given to us. And so he, he's going to use that to give teeth to the messages that he's bringing to Judah. These warnings, you know, had been tragically fulfilled that, that he gave to the northern kingdom. And so he's saying, look, you better listen to what I'm saying to you because I'm not speaking on my own accord. I'm speaking on behalf of Almighty God, Right. And so, so he's going to do that, and, and he's going to basically let them understand, like, you know, northern Israel didn't re- repent. You need to take note and repent while there's still a window for you to do so. Okay? That's kind of what he's getting at. So let's look then first at Isaiah's sort of warning to the drunkards of Ephraim. That's what I decided to call it, right? The warning to the drunkards of Ephraim. And Isaiah recounts this message again that he had sent to Ephraim. Let's just look at verses 1 through 4. He says, Ah, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest, like a storm of mighty, overflowing waters, he cast down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot, and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like a first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it's in his hand. So here's what's going on. This message, okay, 
is to all of Ephraim, which is, you know, another name for the northern kingdom of Israel. We also call it, you know, Samaria, but, and, and the, the capital city there was, in fact, Samaria. And that's where this is focused. Samaria was the great city for, for the northern kingdom that was located on a hill that overlooked these fertile hills and luxurious and rich valleys that sort of surrounded it. And, and it was the proud crown of the northern kingdom. It was like their crown jewel city. It was beautiful to them. It was full of splendor. But in God's eyes, what it really was, was a fading flower. It was losing all of its luster, right? Its glory was coming to an end. And, and what was the reason, right? Now, when you read that, if you're not careful, you say, well, because of their drunkenness. But that's not really the issue. The drunkenness is the product of something else. And the issue really is their pride, right? The proud crown. It's their pride. They were a prideful people. And, and they had engaged in the self-indulgence that often comes along with pride. They were a people that had forgotten God, who had become drunk with pride and drunk with power and drunk with their own glory. And then, of course, drunk with wine, right? And, and really what had become of the northern kingdom and its leadership especially was that they had become consumed with sort of a debauched lifestyle and they exalted themselves against God and they trusted in their own material resources, you know, and in and, and, and their own wisdom and in the security that they thought their military alliances afforded them, right? And so, though threatened by an, an enemy that was far more powerful than they were, they sort of satisfied themselves Um, They just kind of like tried to distract themselves from the obvious by engaging in indulgent revelry, right? And here's the deal. That drunken revelry reveals some serious and disturbing issues in in, in the nation of of Israel, in the northern kingdom. One, it reveals the fact that the, the leadership of the nation was thoroughly corrupt. And in a time of national crisis, instead of a firm, and a godly, and a, and a sober, and a, and a wise leadership. Instead, they responded to this prospect of imminent disaster, really God's judgment, by pacifying their consciences, and by, by seeking to extract whatever pleasure was left to be had in whatever time was left. They just distracted themselves. They amused themselves and kind of just thought it would go away. Like they just put their heads down and rather than facing the music and dealing with the issue, they thought it would just sort of disappear. I I can remember doing that when I was a kid, right? I remember the first time I ever brought home a C on the first and last time I ever brought home a C on a report card. I was in fifth grade and I got home before my parents and the strict rule in my home, um, although my dad was like, you know, a coach of every sport known to man, was you get all A's or you don't play sports. And so I'd gotten this C, right? And I had actually tried to doctor my... Yeah, I had actually tried to doctor my little... And so I, I knew I was in trouble, right? I mean, I knew it. So rather than just going home and dealing with it, I went home and I hid it in my, my dresser and I took a nap. You ever done that? Like you take a nap, you think you're going to wake up, it's going to like be all gone. Maybe it's a bad dream. I took a nap, I woke up, and <laughs> there was no deliverance to be found, right? You know, the deal is this, this drunken revelry, this prospect, really, what it shows is this, this form of escapism, which really has been the refuge, I think, of fools since time immemorial, right? 
Like escapism only postpones the hard encounter with reality that can't be avoided. And, and I think we're seeing that played out in our own time, right? I, I, especially in our nation, you know, like in, in the churches. Like I'm not just gonna, I'm not going to exempt the churches from this. Like I'm saying even in, in, our, in our nation, like rather than dealing with the real issues in our nation, in our churches, we, we, we you know, we amuse ourselves. We placate and we, and we amuse ourselves and our consciences and we act as if nothing's going on and nothing's wrong. And, you know, if we just ignore it long enough, it'll go away. Man, that doesn't work. That never works. That is the strategy of stupidity. That's what that is, right? Like, that's, that's not a plan of action. That's just dumb, right? Moreover, I want you to see how this revelry really puts to the lie. This idea that somehow, you know, there's a separation between the public and the personal morality, you know, of leaders, you know, in a nation as it regards the effects that it has upon their people. And that corollary that, you know, the private lives of public leaders have no effect on the way in which they go. How long have we been fed that lie? Right. I know at least since Bill Clinton, but probably way before that, right? No, the issue is that the, 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 the pride of the leadership of northern Israel had brought them to the brink of ruin. But it must be said, and I do want to say this, that the nation willingly followed in their steps, right? And that's what happened. The nation of, 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 of Ephraim willingly followed in their steps, right? But God's not mocked. Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, destroying tempest, the storm of mighty overflowing waters. He cast down the earth with his hand. And we know, we know that the one of whom Isaiah is speaking is what? Is what nation? What nation is it? What nation is going to come against them and destroy the northern kingdom in 722 B.C.? I've already alluded to it like seven times. Assyria. Yeah, Assyria, right? We know that this is about Assyria. But he leaves them here unnamed. Why is that? Why do you suppose that is? Why doesn't, why doesn't Isaiah say, look, Assyria, God has Assyria primed to come and teach you a lesson. Why doesn't he say that? The reason he doesn't say that, beloved, is to put the focus on Yahweh himself as the bringer of judgment for the sins of the nation. Right? It's God that's, that's acting here. He's the main actor here. Not, not Assyria. And the description of this judgment is terrifying, right? Hail and tempest, the storm of mighty, overflowing waters. Now, it just, it shows you, it gives you a picture of something that's like just thorough and complete. They were going to be trodden underfoot by the, by the instruments of God. And it would be swift. When the judgment came, it would be fast. It would be like somebody, the, the, the analogy he uses here is great. Like they didn't harvest, you know, figs in a sort of, um, you know, in a formal manner, in the way that they harvested everything else, the Israelites. The, the, the basic deal was you just go out to a fig tree and you'd grab some figs whenever you wanted it. And it would be as simple as going out, grabbing the fig and popping it in your mouth, right? And just, boom, there it goes. And that's the idea here. The picture is of like, this is how quick it's going to be. It's going to be like when somebody comes up to a fig tree, just pulls one off and gobbles it up. You're going to be gobbled up. The party's coming to a quick end. Get ready. And then almost shockingly, right? Like we're expecting Isaiah to go on and describe, right? Almost shockingly, in the midst of this, this sentence of gloom, right? Isaiah offers this quick hope, this quick glimmer of hope, right? In verses 5 and 6, he says, In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. 
and a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. It almost seems out of place, doesn't it? Like we're not expected to see that. No sooner has Isaiah described the way in which the northern kingdom is going to be swallowed up by judgment than he envisions this day when it's going to be transformed. And the words crown and glory and beauty are the exact same words that we find in verse 1, except here they're linked not with the city of Samaria, right, but with the Lord Himself. He will, the idea is He will, in and through Himself, one day undo everything that sin has done. While Israel right now has a weak and worthless king, one day, the remnant will one day enjoy a true king. One that will render proper judgment in everything. One that will set everything right. A king that will be a, a source of strength and security to his people. Now ultimately we know that, that who's being envisioned here is Christ, the king. And it's a description really of what he is to his people in every age, right? To his Old Testament saints, to the remnant in Isaiah's time, to you know the saints in the church age. But then also, ultimately, what he will be for us forever in the age to come, right? So there's this great hope that Isaiah says is out there, but it's just not for the northern kingdom, not right now. And then he goes on to continue indicting them. And he indicts not only the political leadership of the nation, but the spiritual leadership. And this is important. He says in verses 7 and 8, These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest... And the prophet reel with strong drink. They're swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. Man. That's about as scathing as it gets, man. He speaks of the worthlessness and the selfish indulgence of the very ones who should have known better. Those who should have been the moral light and the spiritual compass to a darkened and a wandering northern kingdom. Right? The priest and the prophet. Instead of being the solution, instead of being the voice of truth, they're they're part of the problem. Because they've been seduced by the same sort of pride and self-indulgence as the political leadership has. They've been taken in by the same sort of revelry. The prophets, right? These obviously are not true prophets. These are false prophets. But these prophets who were to have visions from God, right? Were instead polluted by vain imaginations. Vain thoughts. Worthless ideas is the idea here. The priests that were to render righteous judgment, the righteous application of godly wisdom, they were faltering and they were corrupted. And their ministry, right? That's the idea of the tables here. Their ministry, the tables of the sacrifices and of the word of the Lord, it's just full of filthy vomit. That's all they have to offer. There's no place left for the word of God, only the propagation of, of godless and, and, and self-exalting lies. And here's the idea. When the political leaders, you know, of a nation sin, the whole community suffers, right? I mean, we see that. It trickles down. But what's even worse is this, is that when the spiritual leadership of the nation is corrupt, then it can no longer speak to the political leadership from a place of righteousness, can it? From a place of truth. 
from a place of unimpeachability, from a place of faithfulness. And when that happens, look, there's nothing left but destruction for that nation. And that's why the faithful preaching of the Word of God in our world, in our nation right now, is so, so, so vitally important. That's why we're not straining at gnats when we insist upon a faithful gospel. Or the right application of God's order and His plan and His purpose for men and women. Or a right understanding of sexual morality and righteousness. You know? And and not just, listen, it's not just like, you know, speaking and and, and directing our attention at gay and transgender. I'm talking about sexual morality amongst single people and amongst husbands and wives. Like there's a reason we need the faithfulness of the, of, of the Word of God preached. But here's the issue here, and I want you to see this. Not only is the political and the spiritual leadership of the northern kingdom corrupted, in their pride, they're also unteachable, right? Man, when you're unteachable, there's not much left for you. Really. They're unteachable. In fact, verses, in verses 9 and 10... Isaiah sort of represents their response to God's message through him. In fact, they're insulted. And they, they resent being treated as they see it, as children, right? Look at what he, how, he, how he pictures their response. He says in verses 9 and 10, To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from milk? Those taken from the breast? For it's precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. You see the response? It's this. It's like, you know, who does Isaiah think he's talking to? <laughs> I mean, really, who's going to listen to what he has to say? Or who, who's going to be taught by him? Children and babies? Certainly not us. It's like primary school, the stuff he's telling us. They looked upon Isaiah's warnings as worthless and childish, as, as, as if they were beneath them, as infantile nonsense and prattle, right? Like teaching a little baby as ABCs. But Isaiah's message was nothing less than the Word of God, right? It was the message, fleshed out, of course, that had been given to Abraham and to Moses, the promise of God's favor if they would only worship Him and honor Him, if they would only live in accordance with His commandments, if they would only believe His promises. But to them, that message and the promise of God's blessing and of life was to them too basic, not sophisticated enough, you know, not nuanced enough for their present situation. That message was for babies and they were beyond that. It was just precept upon precept, precept upon precept, right? It was unbecoming to a people like them. If you jump down to verse 12, you see the gist of the message, right? Through Isaiah, the Lord had told them, look at it, this is rest. Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. The idea being this, that turn to Yahweh, repent of your sin. Like, it's not too late. Trust in Him, and you'll find rest and repose. You'll find peace with Him. They wouldn't hear. And because they refused to hear, because they, 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 they stopped up their ears to the message through Isaiah, the Lord determined to speak to them in another way that would surely get their attention. 
They may, we might try to put ourselves above the word of God to dismiss and ignore it, but God has other ways of speaking that no one can dismiss. Verse 11 through 13, it says, For by a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people, to whom he has said, This is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. If they would not hear, and the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. I want you to get the, like, this is a terrifying statement. This is terrifying. This is a terrifying statement of the judgment of God. Isaiah says, look, he'll speak to the northern kingdom by means of people of strange lips and foreign tongues, by the invading army of Assyria, right? And if they thought that Isaiah's ministry was a meaningless jumble of words, you know, just baby babble, meaningless jumble of noises, that is exactly what they will hear in the mouths of these foreign invaders. And they would learn their lesson at the hands of a people whose language they did not understand, but their ruthlessness would be plain enough. And it would be deliberate. And it would be... It would be applied precept by precept. Line upon line. Until they understood exactly the message. They would, be fall, they would fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. The unknown tongues of the foreigners was not a way of God's edifying His people. It was a rebuke for unbelief. Because they refused, they would meet their end. And they did. Just as Isaiah told them they would in 722 B.C. God's word didn't return to him void. But being not mixed with faith, it did the northern kingdom no good except to condemn them. And the lesson that the northern kingdom failed to learn, Isaiah is saying, by using this as his intro, you guys sometimes think I have a long intro, using this as his intro, Judah's got to learn. They need to learn now. And so that background that, of this message that he gave some 20 years previous, Isaiah now turns to the present situation in Judah. And he tells him, man, Don't make the same mistake by scoffing at the word of the Lord. Don't do it. Look starting in verse 14. Now he's turning to, to Judah. He says, Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. Let me just tell you something right away. Okay, If he's intending to get the attention of the leaders in Judah, one of the sure ways to do it would be by calling them scoffers. Right? Because that's not a small word in the Old Testament. That is, an actual, that is actually one of the most stinging accusations and labels that you can probably put on somebody. I mean, that's pretty big, and I'll tell you why. In the Old Testament, scoffing was considered to be the very last degree of godlessness. Like, by the time you got to being a scoffer, man, you had already gone through several stages of being ungodly before the Lord, right? It describes somebody that's cynical, completely cynical of divine truth, who is self-assured, who's beyond correction, who is arrogant. And, and it, was, it was designed to get a reaction, right? 
And then what he does is even more interesting. He puts into their mouths words to describe the alliance, what's actually true about that alliance that they had made with Egypt, right? So remember, they're in alliance with Egypt. They're rebelling against Assyria. They think that's going to protect them, right? He says, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have an agreement, when the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we have taken shelter. You see what he's doing? He's, he's, he's like, but they would never actually say that, right? They would say, well, because we made this alliance with Egypt, whenever the Assyrians come after us, we're going to be able to withstand their blows. And though they come at us and they, they try to, to wreck us, we know we'll be able to stand firm and we'll be able to repel them. And because we have, you know, by our own wisdom, we have banded together to support and encourage and strengthen one another. And he's saying, if you had any sense, you would realize you're deluding yourselves. You're thinking you're going to find shelter in this political and military alliance, but in reality, what you've done is make a covenant with death. You've made an agreement with Sheol, the abode of the dead, to help fill it up. In their agreement with Egypt, to the exclusion of faith in God, Isaiah is saying, look, you are signing your own death warrant. And you are taking refuge in, 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 in just Make believe land. And you think you're going to find shelter there. He pulls no punches. Like he's, man, he's like, bam, bam, right? And then he continues saying this in verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes, believes in the Lord, will not be in haste. He says, listen, while you're scrambling around, trying to make all these alliances to deliver yourselves, the Lord is saying, Yahweh the Almighty is saying, look, I have laid a foundation, the foundation upon which Judah should build, a tested stone. That's a really interesting, it can mean either this, it can either mean one that's been examined and found strong and resilient, or it can mean one that tests and exposes the weakness of those who don't build upon it. Okay, so it can mean either one. One that's treasured, right, precious, and cannot be moved. One that anchors the whole as a cornerstone. And then he says, whoever believes won't be in haste. They won't act quickly. The idea is, whoever believes in the Lord won't be frantically searching for rescue elsewhere. They'll search for rescue in Him. Now, how we'd understand that? Because, you know, we just got through Romans 9.33. Well, in the near-term fulfillment, the vast majority of commentators agree that the Lord here is speaking of Isaiah and the remnant that had gathered around him. The guys that were hearing Isaiah preach and were affirming it and, and trusting in him and, and whose faith was in the everlasting rock who is God, that faithful remnant who, very much against the current trend, was placing their whole confidence in the Lord and, and, and waiting patiently and confidently for him to act, that perhaps Judah should look at them. You know, Hezekiah and his counselors, look at them and emulate them. Right? And then, of course, we know that in the long view, he's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in Romans 9.33, right? Who would be sent by God, who in fact would be brought forth from the, the line of this remnant and who would accomplish that full and true salvation of his people and be the foundation stone and the cornerstone of his church. But the idea here, the promise is, if you take refuge in God, you won't be moved. 
That's the idea. It's the message that Judah needed to hear, right? It was the message we all need to hear, right? Especially as we you know, live in this tumult of our age and our nation that's stampeding headlong off a cliff. It's actually right now, I think, experiencing the throes of God's judgment. Judah needed to turn to Yahweh and they needed to cling to him. And here's why. Look what the Lord says. This is cool. He says, and I will make justice the line, the measuring line. Okay? The horizontal measuring line. And I will make righteousness the plumb line, the vertical square. Right? And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Here's why they needed to take refuge in Yahweh and do it quickly. Because the measuring line, the plumb line, those are measures of exactitude, right? Of perfection. That's the idea. And in other words, God was coming to square all things according to his justice and his righteousness. That's what he was going to do. He was going to square all things. And if Judah continued on the current path, God was going to bring exacting judgment against her. According to his principles of divine justice and according to his righteousness. And he would expose those lies in which they sought refuge and, 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 and in which they thought they could rescue themselves. And he would destroy their imagined shelter, right? He says then in verses 18 and 19, Then your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. That little pact that you had with Egypt is going to be worthless. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. You're not going to escape the whip of the tail. Assyria is going to pound you. And as often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning it will pass through. It will, be, it will be seemingly endless. It will be relentless. The force they bring against you. They will pass through by day and by night. And it will be sheer terror to understand the message. If you refuse to listen to the clear words of God. Right? This, is, this is following off of what he just said, or didn't just say, 20 years ago said, to Samaria. If you refuse to hear the Lord plainly speaking through me, then listen. He'll explain things in another way. And you won't fail to understand it. You'll get the message, but it'll be, it'll be terrifying. He says, For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. This is where we get the whole... You know, it's your bed. You know, you got to lie in it kind of thing. That's really where we got it. They had made their bed with Egypt, right? By their own wisdom and might. And they would have to lie in it. But it would prove to be inadequate, right? It would, it would be like a bed too short that doesn't give rest. I've never experienced that, but I have friends that have experienced, because I'm short. But I've never experienced, I have, I have friends that, I've, that I know that are tall that have, that have experienced that. Like sleeping on a bed that is too short and you wake up completely unrefreshed and your joints in pain and all of that. It would be like that. And not only that, the blanket would be too narrow so that it could provide no warmth and comfort. And then Isaiah adds his inspired commentary here, right? God's been speaking. And then Isaiah adds this inspired commentary by saying this in verse 21. He says, For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon, he will be roused to do his deed, strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now here's what he's saying. He said, you know, think about it. Back in the day, at Perizim, 
That was when God gave David's enemies, the Philistine, into his hand. And David said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Sounds familiar, right, to what we've just been reading. And it was in the Valley of Gibeon that God again gave the Philistines into David's hand. And it was by those two battles where God did the work that he established David as king and he caused the nations to fear David and, and to fear the nation of Israel and to fear Israel's God, right? And what Isaiah is communicating here is this. is like, look, God would delight to act in this way now. God would delight to sweep away your enemies if you only sought him with the same faith in which David did. He would delight to do that now, to destroy the enemies of his people. But because of the unwillingness of Judah to seek his face and to trust in his might, God has to do the strange deed and the alien work of bringing judgment upon Judah instead of her enemies. Think about it like this. A father loves to teach and train and raise up his children. He loves to fashion them and shape them and teach them and, you know, pour into them. That's the natural work of a dad, right? But when he's got to take up the rod, that's the alien work. It's the strange work. It's necessary it's not necessarily desirous, but it's necessary. Isaiah's talking about God in an anthropomorphic way here, so we understand. Right? He's got to act in judgment because of Judah's worldly actions. He's got to punish those who have broken faith and broken covenant with him because his holiness demands it. And if they continue in the cynical disregard of the Lord, they're only going to be the architects of their own doom. Because the only way to flee the only way to flee from God is what? To flee to Him. And so in light of this, he makes a plea. He makes a plea for the leaders of Judah to repent. Look what he says. Now therefore, do not scoff. Don't scoff. Lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Don't tune me out. Don't scoff at the word of the Lord. Do the opposite. Humble yourself. Hear the truth of God. Be corrected. Stop relying on your own wisdom. Respond in repentance and faith to the Lord. Respond rightly before your bonds are made so secure and so strong that you can't escape. I know what God said. I know the destruction that awaits Judah if you don't. And then he closes this whole thing, right? To get his point across by telling a parable of the farmer. Very interesting. Read it with me, starting in verse 23. He says, give ear. Hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he's leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill? So cumin. And put in wheat and rows and barley in its proper place and emmer as the border. For he's rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. 
Does one crush grain for bread? The idea is to crush it to powder. No. He doesn't thresh it forever, but when he, he, when he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Now, I want you to see what Isaiah is doing here because it's really super cool. He employs this parable to explain God's ways to Judah in a manner that they could understand. They're an agrarian culture, right? They're an agrarian culture. And they understood that there was a wisdom and a purpose in everything that the farmer did to ensure that he would get his desired results. He didn't just habitually plow the ground and, and harrow it. To harrow a ground is to like drag a, a log or you know, disc behind it. I mean, that's what we do now. We disc it, you know, and it breaks up all the little clumps of dirt and it makes it fat, right? That's what that was. You don't do that forever if you're going to bring forth a crop, right? If you do that, if you just continue doing that, you're not getting anything, right? That's not what you do. Instead, you, you plant your seed according to your purpose in its proper place. And, and when you harvest what you've sowed, you do it according to the kind of crop that you're harvesting, right? You don't harvest all crops in the same way, right? I mean, imagine, you know, imagine you're, you're, you're reaping corn with a corn reaper and then you try to use that on apples. Not working, right? You don't do that. You, you do it according to crop. And so all this wisdom... All this wisdom, Isaiah says, he's received from the Lord. God taught him this. Why? Because that's how God works. That's how God works. God's not haphazard. He's not arbitrary in the way that he deals with nations, and especially not in the way that he deals with Israel and Judah. Like, God just doesn't, like, throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks. He's not just trying to, to come up, you know, shifting on the fly. He, he does everything according to his sovereign plan and his perfect wisdom to ensure that his purposes are accomplished. His word doesn't return void, right? It accomplishes everything that he intends. And so here's Judah faced with a choice. You continue in the way of stubborn sin and foolishness, or you repent and you return to the Lord, and thereby you are delivered from destruction. Repent and seek God's face. But whatever they do, however they respond, God's dealings with them, we're directed toward a good end. And he does what he does in a way that he does it to uphold his glorious sovereign Lord and to create where it doesn't exist and sanctify a people for himself, for his own praise. God is purposeful in everything. God does not waste a thing. And then last by this parable, Isaiah is pressing home this point too. He's saying, you know, if the farmer learned his lesson from God, shouldn't you too? Shouldn't you learn this lesson? If the reason his work is so productive is that he's open to God's wisdom and willing to be guided like it, unlike the proud, foolish leaders of Jerusalem, perhaps you should turn and become like the farmer and humble yourself and take a lesson from him before it's too late. That's a powerful text, man. It is a remarkable, it's a remarkable sermon. Um, so, there's a lot of contemporary application I'm sure we could talk about forever, but I think, I think there are a few things that stick out. One, in a godless nation, of course, there are many challenges, right? But there's only one solution. And that solution is Yahweh. It's Christ. It's, it's God Himself. 
And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, we need faithful preachers and a faithful people, a faithful church, to, to live lives of obedience and to preach a gospel that has weight, right? And that's why we need to take the word seriously ourselves and proclaim it with seriousness and refuse to be seduced by the, you know, the sirens of this world that promise pleasure and all that and really deliver a banquet in the grave. So, we're going to pray. Let's go to the Lord. Heavenly Father, when I read this text, I just realize, and it's pressed home more and more to my heart, that Your Word is not something to be trifled with. Your Gospel, Your promises, the revelation of Your truth, Lord, it's not something that we should ever take lightly or ever think that we have... We have pressed beyond. I think about you know, the warning that you give in your word about those who have pressed on beyond Christ. And they're to be regarded as unfaithful, false, and untrue. Lord, we never progress beyond even the most basic of truths. We need them all. And Father, it's true, we... We know a great deal more than we actually live. I pray that you would help us, Lord God, to increasingly live more in accordance with what we know and who we know. Father, we know that our salvation entirely is of your grace and we receive it by faith. But that faith is a living faith. It's not a dead faith. It's a faith that, Father, produces real work real works in our lives, real faithfulness, real obedience, real holiness, real pursuit of Christ. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would make of us a faithful people um, in the midst of a nation that refuses to acknowledge you. Or if they do, they only do it in a mocking tone, patronizing way, but who are open, it seems, in their affectation, in their love for, or their their affection and their love for Satan. It's truly troubling. Help us to be faithful in the midst of all of that. And Lord, to live in such a way as brings glory to your holy name. To live in such a way as we can be, you know, fit vessels for the proclamation of the gospel and live in such a way as you are glorified in our living. Thank you for all good things that you have given to us. Thank you for your holy word. What a what a measuring line and a plumb line it is for us. How it helps us get our minds right. Thank you. Pray that you would bless this, this message and this, these truths that we consider, God, to our souls and bring forth fruit. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.